0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 297 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex, and I'll be your host.
1: Somewhere back at the dawn of history, man discovered roast duck. Man's next discovery, the stubby stomach. Centuries will pass before he discovers something to unstop it. When he does, he will call it Alka-Seltzer. It's bubbly out. Fresh per coffee, that's what it tastes like. No instant max. Now a better blend of coffee beans. freshly sparked I see your husband didn't like your coffee. I beg your pardon? I'm Mrs. Johnson. You the should try my drink coffee. With Look, rich I don't natural flavor. And more from vitamin from C than orange juice. Still, Tang's biggest role isn't in NASA's space program. It's right here on
0: Earth. You know... When I'm uh, done ranting about elite power that rules the planet under a totalitarian government that uses the media in order to keep people stupid, my throat gets parched. (laughs) That's why I drink
2: orange
0: drink. Yeah, right. See, don't you see how it all fit in? Don't you see how every word I said would be hollow and filled with nothing? This podcast is ad-free. So far I've managed to keep the ad demons at bay. I do get a lot of requests to make ads, but I don't want to do that. And if you enjoy this podcast and want to support it, there are a few things you can do. You can leave a nice review on iTunes, that always helps, or become a Patreon. Or head over to YouTube and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search for Natural Born Alchemist channel on YouTube and you will find it. If you like and comment my videos, it helps the algorithm. All the links can be found in the program notes or on naturalbornalchemist.com. So please, uh, do what you can and support the podcast. I appreciate it. In the last episode, I talked at length about the Bible and especially Genesis. Now, I figured it'd be apt to get a proper scholar on the show. And that is why my guest is scholar and author Robert M. Price. Price challenges biblical literalism and argues for a more skeptical and humanistic approach to Christianity. He is also the host of the Bible Geek podcast, where he presents theology with a twist, but without the spin. So thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. So can you tell the listeners a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, my name's
2: Bob Price, Robert M. Price, um, my full name that I um, use when I'm writing. And uh, I have been a college professor, and uh, I've taught at uh, grad school, seminary, community college, and uh, online colleges over the years. Uh, But now I uh, much more enjoy a kind of freelance uh, teaching style where I uh, impart what I know over podcasts uh, of my own, like The Bible Geek and The Human Bible, uh they're they're almost the same thing but there's a little more structure to uh the human bible uh in the bible geek it's just uh, listener questions that are emailed to me and I do my best to answer them uh but then I also write uh, a bunch of books like the recent um uh book um judaizing jesus and uh I'm frequently on uh Derek um uh <laughs> Derek Lambert, I'm losing my wits here, uh his uh, Myth Vision podcast. And uh I, I find that this is just so rewarding because I not only don't have the nuisance of uh uh faculty responsibilities, uh, I have had that, and boy is that terminally boring. Uh, But I also don't have to give grades and tests and all that stuff. I'm just uh, talking about what interests me and uh, that seems to interest a, a pretty widespread audience and uh one thing you hate as a teacher is to have to teach to unresponsive students who are only there in the class because it's required or they at least they uh, figure they'll get some easy credits out of it you have to try to entertain them and see if you can give them something to stick in their minds. But uh, here, theres I know there's no one here listening who is not as interested in this material as I am. And uh, they come from various viewpoints, and it's just great fun to explore all this critical Bible stuff. Um, And and by that, I I don't mean like attacking the Bible, but using scholarly critical tools to understand it better as an ancient document rather than as a theological magic book where you have to believe everything it says. That's pretty tough to do, and it ties your brain in knots after a while if you try it. Because it's uh, really a library of books written by different people at different times, and they had different beliefs. And once you drop the blinders of uh, compulsory theology, well, I'm supposed to believe this and that, uh, then the Bible, I find, uh, becomes much more interesting when, when you read it for what it seems to want to say. So uh, that's that's kind of what I do, podcasting, reading, and writing and the like
0: what made me continue listening to your bible geek show was the fact that and correct me if i'm wrong but it seems to me that uh, you are not like trying to preach the word of the bible or you're not like a believer but also you're not uh, trying to destroy the bible it's like a middle ground (laughs) in a way And can you explain then, because that can confuse some people, if you don't believe it and if you don't dislike it, why are you dedicating so much time to it?
2: Well, I'm sure in a sense that what I, like the fact that I'm still so interested in it is kind of a a matter of inertia. I, I got so interested in the Bible when I was a, Teenage fundamentalist And then on through college And so on I was still a believer And uh, read the Bible And read about the Bible And then when studying the bible made me think that you know this stuff just does not hang together it it just isn't what they told me it was uh it has errors it has contradictions and and so forth uh and but that made it all the more interesting i i felt like i was at a crossroads i couldn't just continue with this this magic view of the Bible, it wasn't it's not authoritative, though of course there's a lot of wisdom in it and there's a lot of literary uh, masterpiece material in there. but uh, it remained interesting, uh, as I say, partly because I got so interested when I did believe in it, but it is it's inherently fascinating and uh, and I don't want to. Condemn it or or fight against it. I, in fact, I would say my stance toward the Bible is exactly like a that of a classicist. Who is studying the Iliad and the Odyssey and and these old books of Greek mythology, they don't believe there's a Zeus or an Apollo or anything like that, Uh, but they, they don't have to to see how endlessly interesting it is and what a monument to the human imagination. And if, if somebody came up to, uh, imagine if somebody came up to a classics professor and said, uh, you know, you're, you're really twisting people's minds here. They ought to believe that Zeus is real and that when the sun shines every day, it's Apollo and his chariot. You're undermining their faith. The classics professor would say, I, I don't think you understand what we're dealing with here. Uh, these, it's it's now impossible for an educated rational person to believe in uh, in the the tales of the Greek gods, but we love them, and they form a an important part of our culture and civilization, they're great stuff. Uh, But you're doing them no favor by reading them in a naive, literalistic way. And it's the same with the Bible. I love the Bible. I I wouldn't just dump it or drop it. I'm fascinated by it. So I do point out stuff that fundamentalists do not like to hear. But I'm not just trying to make them uncomfortable. My point is to say, hey, look at the Bible without the blinders. You'll find it more interesting than ever. And uh, so what if it's not a magic book? You got to think for yourself on all those issues. Is there a God? Uh, Was there a real Jesus? Uh, What is right and wrong? Well, the Bible's an interesting resource for that, but there are many others, and it's really up to you to, to to do some hard thinking about that, but we don't want to do that though, because people have been told that, hey, you better believe the creed, you better, you better believe what you heard in Sunday school, because if you don't, when you die, you're gonna take a big final exam on theology, and if you get enough questions wrong, uh, down you go, down the chute into the inferno, uh, and what? What kind of an image is that of God? You're making him into a picky and merciless theology professor. I, that's, that's insulting to God if there is one, it seems to me. But that people feel they don't dare think about these beliefs for themselves. And I say, like Immanuel Kant did, dare to know. That's the only, or like to adapt what Socrates said, uh, the unexamined faith is not worth believing. And so that's what I promote, a positive interest in the Bible, but a realistic one. And it's all the more interesting when you do that.
0: If I want to study the Bible, I mean, I'm not going to learn Hebrew or Greek or anything like that. So I will always have a version that's not really the most correct version it's it will be a translated version but then there's like so many many different versions which version would you say in english is the one you think is like the most accurate in terms of how it could be read in the old days Uh, i think that
2: the ones that stick the closest to the original um um Meaning and word order and and so forth that that don't just paraphrase it uh, are uh, the uh, the revised standard version and uh, there are and the new American Standard Bible. Now, both of these have been revised several times, and I'm still using older versions of them, but um, i I kind of don't like the fact that the more recent revisions, are trying to fudge it a bit and and make it a little more politically correct Uh, because i can see that if you're talking about bible readings in church where men and women are going to listen to it and so you might have paul addressing the brethren and sisters but that's not literally what it says so if i'm studying the bible to try to figure out what its authors meant I wouldn't add ancestors, because it's uh, kind of important to know that it didn't occur to the writer to put it that way. Because there are, of course, these big questions of did they think men and women were equal uh, in the eyes of God? Well, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. So you can't just rewrite it the way you wish the authors had done. At done. And I think your, the, the best study Bibles are the most uh, literal ones. Uh, and there there are other ones that are more idiomatic and, and tend toward paraphrasing it. And they're very good too, like the New English Bible and uh, the Jerusalem Bible and, and so forth. Uh, but I, I like to, to read them in conjunction with more literal ones because there's a, more of an element of interpretation in something like the New English Bible, or I think today they publish it uh, as the Revised English Bible. It gets confusing. Uh, but those are, are good translations, and they're almost kind of commentaries, uh, but they're not just uh, total paraphrases like the Living Bible or something, which is some guy's very private uh, personal reading of it it's worth taking a look at that but it's that's not really for study
0: I want to pick your brains on a few things in the Bible that uh, I have questions about uh, and one is in the very beginning uh, it's right after uh, God has chastised the serpent and Adam and Eve uh, and he says that um, well I'll quote it cor- uh, correctly see the man has become like one of us and he's speaking in plural uh which is very strange uh, i mean who us who are they uh i think it
2: uh, it refers to other israelite gods uh they we, we're told uh, that uh they were monotheistic all the way back and occasionally they would uh Lapse into polytheism under the influence of their pagan neighbors. But that's a kind of a cover story by later biblical writers and editors who were embarrassed at the earlier, more primitive forms of Israelite belief. And uh, so they. uh, they, they claimed, well, uh, our ancestors wouldn't have believed any of that stuff if it hadn't rubbed off them from those uh, rotten pagans that lived next door. But in fact, stuff like that shows that they, the earlier Israelites believed in a pantheon of gods. Uh, because sometimes, you know, in, in uh, Genesis 1, you'll have something like, uh, let us make man in our image. Well, it's possible that that's just the royal we that uh, God is saying like uh, some kings would do. Uh, We are displeased with your manner in the royal court uh, or like the editorial we. But uh, that's, if you look close, that's probably not true even in that case. Uh, But uh, surely in the passage you're quoting from uh, Genesis 2, The idea is that uh, that uh, Yahweh or Jehovah is warning his fellow deities says, oh, my gosh, look at this. Uh, I didn't anticipate this, but the man uh, and the woman have become like one of us. Well, one of us is not the royal we. I mean, that's not a single voice there unless you're talking about a multiple personality disorder. Uh, It's got to be a God saying, look, we've got enough gods here. Uh, It was all right if they ate from the tree of life and lived forever because I made Adam so he could uh, tend my garden here forever. Uh, and and uh, in fact, he originally only wanted the one. And he saw that there wasn't enough work to keep him busy all the time. And he was lonely. So he fashions a woman as a companion. But even then, that's it. He, in this creation story, he does not tell them, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and, and that's what the serpent has let them in on, that they can propagate their species. And, and that's why uh, the, the knowledge business is invoked. It's like carnal knowledge. And uh, this somehow, once they learn this from the serpent, uh, that, that God told you you would die, but you're not gonna. I'll tell you what will happen, though, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like God or like gods. You can't really tell in that one, whether it's singular or plural, uh, knowing good and evil. So uh, they ate it and nothing happened. They, they didn't die, but they did have their eyes opened and gained knowledge. And that's what upsets Jehovah. He says, I was trying to avoid this, but now and we got to kick them out of Eden because if they... If they keep eating from the tree of life and live forever, and they can propagate their species, and they'll be rivals to us. We'll have an untold number of gods to compete with. Let's get them out of here. Hence, uh, being kicked out of Eden. Like this is raw polytheism, like in the Enuma Elish and the Gilgamesh epic and all of that stuff. Uh, and God is pictured as as uh, in the form of a man, like in even in chapter one. uh, uh, So God Elohim, God or the gods, take your pick, um, uh, made man uh, in his own image, uh, Uh, male and female, he created them. Well, I think that implies that the gods who made mankind uh, are male and female themselves, just like in all the other ancient religions of the time. And so eventually you get to stuff like uh, the book of Isaiah, where where, uh, the prophet has God say, uh, I am God, there is none other beside me. Okay, now that's that's monotheism, but that took many centuries to uh, to come about, and uh, there are various reasons for it it uh, evolving that way. But it was a long time in coming, and they didn't go back and erase all the traces of uh, the earlier version of Israelite religion.
0: I always thought it was kind of creepy, that passage, because you're reading it and you're not aware there are other characters around in the scene. And then he suddenly goes, one of us, and you go, wait, wait a minute, I thought this was a a monotheistic situation. But yeah, so that's very interesting. Another thing in, in Genesis that I think most people who read the Bible or know of the Bible very casually, they might. Not realize that there are actually two trees in the garden, and the other tree they don't speak as much about.
2: Yeah, I have even heard uh, some scholars saying that they're really supposed to be one and the same tree, but I don't understand that uh, that opinion. It, it seems pretty clear to me that uh, that there are two, and I think that has something to do with the uh, the temple. Uh, much later when it says there are these two great pillars in it called Boaz and Jachin. Well, what are they? Well, I have a hunch they're supposed to represent the two trees in Eden, but uh, who knows?
0: Another in- interesting thing in the Bible is, uh, is the angels. And you have this, uh, most people have this view of what angels look like. But if you actually in Ezekiel read where he describes the angels, they look more uh, like weird, psychedelic creatures. Um, Can you talk a bit about that?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. uh, Both in Hebrew in the Old Testament and uh, in Greek in the New Testament, uh, what they translate as angels simply means messenger. Uh, It's uh, malachi in the Old Testament, and uh, it's uh, angelos in the Greek New Testament, and of course, you know, we're just transliterating that as angel. But it angels are when they're d- described are always uh, just they just look like humans, and and presumably male humans. We don't know if they believe there were female angels, but I'm guessing they probably did, since the angels were originally. These God, the so called sons of El or sons of God, who were mentioned a couple of times in the Psalms and in the book of Job and so forth. Uh, And the idea was that, like in Deuteronomy 32, there's this archaic poem that says that when Uh, El Elyon, that is God Most High, which sort of implies he's the head of a pantheon of gods, you know, higher than anybody else. Well, who else? Well, there must be lesser gods. Well, they're the sons of Elyon, the highest god. And it says when he was deciding how many nations to divide the human race into, He decided to do it according to the number of the sons of God, implying so that each one of them would have his or her, I guess, own fiefdom. And so that people in their little uh, franchise would would, uh, pray to them and and, uh, ask them for protection and good crops and all of that. And it says, uh, and... um, uh, Yahweh or Jehovah's choice was Israel. Uh, that's interesting because that implies that uh, Yahweh was uh, was one of the sons of God. But somewhere along the line, and there's a debate over when this happened, there was this thing, the Deuteronomic reform, because it has to do with compiling the book of Deuteronomy, among other things. Well, the, these... Um, priests, scribes, whoever they were, decided to streamline Israelite religion and make it monotheistic. And so they said, well, how about this? Yahweh is the same as El Elyon. Yahweh is the highest God. And the rest of them are, uh, are angels, messengers of God, not even lesser gods anymore. And so you have the the fallen sons of God in Genesis 6 who mate with mortal women. Well, in most of the Jewish writings post-Bible, they consider this the fall of the angels. So they've made gods into angels. They didn't want to get rid of them altogether. I mean, they're characters in certain stories, so they they had to retain them. But the vocabulary, the terminology changed. And uh, so there were presumably male and female ones. And when they appear, they look just human, uh the there are these other creatures like in Ezekiel, as such as you mentioned and in Isaiah chapter six, but they're not called angels I- in the Bible anyway uh the ones in um Isaiah are called seraphim or seraphs, and uh they have six wings apiece and it and it says they have feet, faces, and uh hands. Well, still, what are the, all those things attached to? Well, in Egypt, they had seraphs too, and have, there are visual representations of them, and they're all serpents. And, but God, the Egyptian gods give them uh, hands and feet as needed for the missions they send them on. Uh, and they have wings so they can fly, the, the feathered serpent like Quetzalcoatl. Uh, sort of a universal archetype. Uh, So these guys are not said to be angels. They're they're something else. And the same thing with Ezekiel's uh, uh, critters. Uh, They are cherubs, the cherubim and they get uh, made into winged babies in Valentine's cards and stuff, but cherubs were, were uh, widely uh, believed in and represented in the ancient Near East, and they were depicted in at least three ways. Uh, winged humans, um, uh, winged bulls with human faces and a serpent tail Or winged lions with human faces and a serpent's tail. Uh, And so uh, I don't know what determined uh, which ones you you would see or or whatever. But again, these were common to Israel and her neighbors. And cherubs are not called angels. Uh, Seraphs are not called angels. By the time of the New Testament, there are several different ranks of of angels, Uh, archons, uh, authorities, principalities, powers, thrones, dominions. They're listed in a couple of places. And uh, so it gets more and more involved. But like when the angels show up in Sodom on their reconnaissance mission. They don't have halos and wings and stuff. The, the the men of Sodom just take them to be outsiders. Oh, bring these guys out. They're suspicious of foreigners. Uh, it has nothing to do with homosexuals or anything. That's a gross distortion of the story. Uh, but they, uh, or another one, so they, people don't even know they're entertaining angels because they look just like humans. Uh, They may appear and disappear, but that's when you find out what they really are. Uh, But they're never pictured the way we picture them.
0: The one I'm mainly thinking about is that weird thing with like two rings and all those eyeballs around the rings circling.
2: Yeah, um, I think that uh, like those guys in in Ezekiel, they are... um, they appear in Babylonian uh, statuary. and it looks like since Ezekiel is supposedly written in Babylon, that uh, he was getting ideas from that. and uh, at any event, in any event, I think they are supposed to be the cherubs that are on top of the ark of the covenant uh, in the temple, uh, who are winged figures, usually thought to be winged humans, they might be uh and, and so are these guys uh, but there's more to them than that i think they have cows hooves and stuff um but they do have uh like nimbuses uh halos of light and uh they're, they're like uh jeweled like the, the one seated on the throne and my theory though i've never heard anybody else say this uh is that uh if, if you've ever managed to wade through all the chapters of Ezekiel, um, you know, chapter after chapter is taken up with Ezekiel's proposed blueprint for a restored temple. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the the one in Jerusalem, and everybody figured, well, one day it'll be replaced or rebuilt. Well, he said that this angel showed up with a measuring rod and, and gave him the blueprint in great, even boring detail, tedious detail. Well, in that vision earlier in the book, why does Ezekiel go into the mode of transportation for this thing? the throne chariot of God that he's sitting on. Well, the Ark of the Covenant was supposed to be his throne where he was uh, at least invisibly sitting atop it. It had, uh, like you've seen in Raiders of the Lost Ark and in Bible paintings and stuff, the priests would carry that, uh, four of them, holding on to two long poles that ran through rings at the four corners of the chest of the, the, the Ark, the box. Uh, and uh, this wasn't too steady because in this famous story, this guy, uh, Uza, Uza, something like that, I forget. He, he uh, sees that the Ark, he's one of the priests carrying it, and he sees the, that the, they're gonna uh, fall with it into a muddy ditch. And he says, oh, I can't let that happen. And so he reaches out to steady the ark and suddenly is struck by the divine power and he dies. Uh, And uh, well, in Ezekiel's, there's a different mode. They say there are wheels on the bottom of the ark that can turn in any direction, which presumably would make it easier to steer. Uh, and uh, just by pushing it, and so I think this uh, wasn't so much a vision that Ezekiel had; he's just d- designing a new Ark of the Covenant for the new temple, whose blueprint he he uh, he provides. So he's really just doing a fancied-up version of the old Ark of the Covenant with the cherubs on it.
0: One character that has always fascinated me ever since I was like 12 years old, uh, was the character of Joseph of Arimathea. He's the guy who provided uh, a tomb for Jesus. And when you're 12 years old, the reason he was fascinating was because he uh, was the one connected with the Holy Grail, although the Holy Grail is not really mentioned in the Bible, but... Joseph of Arimathea became almost like a spin-off series, if the Bible was a TV series, uh, creating the Arthurian legends. Uh, Could you talk a bit about this character if you have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I'm fascinated with all the Arthurian stuff. Um, Joseph of Arimathea, in a British legend, becomes the uncle of Jesus, and in a sense, this is a wink to um, the story in uh, Matthew, and I guess in Luke, I know that each has a nativity story. I forget if both of them mentioned Joseph. I guess they do by name. Uh, but Joseph of Nazareth uh, and is, is his adoptive father, you might say. But they said that Joseph of Arimathea, the, the legends did, that he was Jesus' uncle and took him uh, during, you know, what was Jesus doing during all those years between his birth and being in the temple arguing with the priests and, and then the day he makes his entrance uh, with the baptism of John. What, what the heck was he doing? Uh, well, everybody tried to fill in that blank. And British legends said that his uncle, Joe, uh, took him to Britain And uh, I forget the rest of what they supposedly did there. But then, uh, based on that, they said that uh, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, that, as the Bible says that, of course. And uh, he was the dissenting voice. He didn't want Jesus uh, condemned, right? But they did it anyway. And... So uh, he uh, managed to get Pilate's permission to bury the body. And and that was a big deal in Judaism at the time, to bury those who had nobody to bury them. Uh, The whole book of Tobit is about that. And so he does, and that much is in the Bible. But then uh, the risen Jesus appears to him at some point after that and hands him the grail. He says, this is the chalice out of which they drank my blood at the Last Supper. I'm entrusting it to you. And he tells him to take it out of uh, Jerusalem. And uh, Joseph goes to first to uh, Brittany uh, in uh, northwest France. And there he builds a round table for the grail to, to be at the center of. I forget what, if anything, Notable happens there, but then later it's taken from there uh, to uh, to Britain and uh, uh, Glastonbury, and I, I guess Joseph takes it all the way there, and so the the Grail Chapel is there, and then you, of course you know they they lose sight of it, and eventually Percival or Gal, uh, Galahad, depending on which version you read, uh, finds it, and, and so on. Uh, and that's uh, that's mighty interesting, uh, partly because it uh, it, it uh, it's been, Arthur Mackin and others theorized that the point of this story was to provide an alternate founding legend for British Christianity, because the standard story of the Catholic Church was that um, that. St. Augustine, not not the famous one who wrote The City of God in North Africa and all that, but another one, Um, he was the first Catholic missionary uh, to the British Isles and that he started Christianity there. Well, apparently this was an alternate foundation legend saying, well, yeah, he came here all right, but we owe no allegiance to Rome and to the Pope, because our Christianity was started by somebody else, Jesus' uncle. Uh, and that's fascinating. I mean, a lot of the Bible stories are really axe grinding in that way. But there's no reason to think it's uh, it, there's any truth to it. It just seems like a concocted legend, though it, it's a great one. I love it.
0: Also, uh, it seems to me that Joseph Arimathea if it, you want to view it as real or as a a plot device but he seems to uh, the reason he gives the tomb uh, is could it be that uh, he has a lot of regret for not daring to stand up uh, to the Sanhedrin uh, because you know it it is also dangerous to to be a dissenting voice Uh, you can maybe also briefly for those who don't know talk about who the Sanhedrin are because it's not so well known maybe
2: yeah that's that was the it used to be the the um governing body of uh uh Israel and and uh and Judea under the romans and they could uh, they they were involved in regular old law crimes and so forth um as well as religious issues but after the war of what was it 67 to 73 A.D. The war with Rome. Uh, they reshuffled the whole thing so that now there was a new Sanhedrin, a, a council, really, uh, and uh, it met a little to the north in Yavna, also called Jamnia, and uh, it was its authority was restricted just to religious matters. Like, uh, and that's when a lot of the Uh, oral traditions that interpreted and applied the Old Testament law uh, when that stuff was propagated. Uh, The Sanhedrin was always a religious body first, though, and there were representatives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the head of it was the high priest. Of uh, of uh, Judaism and he was usually a Sadducee because the Sadducees, which name uh, probably means the the councilman, the syndics. It's like uh, another version of the Greek term the syndikoi, which means like members of a syndicate, uh, a a council, and uh, they uh, they sort of disappeared from the scene after the temple was destroyed because that was their power base. And the Pharisees were really all that was left. And they, their uh, disciples and so forth eventually became the rabbis. And, uh, and they were the authority. Uh, so um, there's a debate over whether this is Jewish Sanhedrin in the time of Jesus had the power of capital punishment, and some sources kind of indicate they did, others that they didn't. It's a confusing mess. Um, it's possible they just had to get the Romans permission uh, to uh, put them to death, and that's, that almost is what happens in the Gospels, only there they actually want the Romans to do it because they're afraid of reprisals by the mob if, if they do it. Uh, but uh, the Sanhedrin was this governing council. And uh, and Joseph is said to have been a member of it. But it's a little different from gospel to gospel. In Mark, you get the idea that he was all in favor uh, of the verdict on Jesus. It says uh, they all judged him worthy of death. And then Joseph enters the picture once he's dead, and, and like I said a moment ago, um, it was a, a, a well-known and highly honored practice of charity to bury the dead who had no one to bury them. Uh, and sometimes you'd just be thrown into a lime pit or left for the dogs to eat. And so it was a great uh, charitable act, even if the guy was, had been a, a, a criminal. Uh, and so there's nothing that odd, even in that, if you say Joseph had voted for Jesus to be condemned to death, he still might well have done this act of charity. But the gospel, and and that's where this this idea of him feeling guilty and trying to you know, atone for what he did by this act of charity. Th- that could be, but Mark doesn't even say he was a sympathizer during Jesus' life. Now, in Matthew, I think it says that I get Matthew and Luke mixed up in this one. In one of them, it says that uh, that um, Joseph uh, uh, was did not vote for the, the death of Jesus, in, an, in uh, I think maybe that's Luke, and Matthew says, not only that, he was a secret disciple of Jesus, uh, but kept it under his turban, because uh, not exactly a popular opinion in those circles. And then in John, we hear that not only was he a secret disciple, but he teamed up with uh, Nicodemus, who we met in chapter three of John, and the the two of them buried Jesus. So you can see the growth of the story as it goes on, because somebody thought, gee, that is pretty weird that the guy would be an enemy of Jesus and then see to his burial. Well, it's not that odd, Uh, but they you know felt as odd to them as it does to many uh, modern readers I, I don't think that is a problem but it's easy to see how somebody thought so
0: i think it's weird that it's four gospels i mean if i wanted to to create a, a bible or a holy text why have four versions of the same events why not just like put them together as one or, or just keep the oldest one well,
2: you know, uh, uh, some of the ancients were thinking like you are. Uh, Tatian, we're told, a Syrian uh, heretic, uh, uh, so-called, did weave the, all four together into a single narrative, uh, which was called the diatessaron, which is just Greek for from, for, uh, dia through, or from, and uh, tessaron, uh, the... the uh, the the four, and uh, he had to figure out, well, what's the order of events, they don't match exactly, and probably like two different versions of some things where you can tell, like Bartimaeus or Jairus' daughter or something, where they don't exactly match, uh, and you can't really iron them out, Uh, so eh, maybe it happened twice. Uh, and at any rate, that was that really was gangbusters in Syria. They loved it, but other uh, everywhere else, bishops didn't like this at all. I'm not sure why, uh, and they had them all burned. And uh, we have we don't even have a copy of the original one, but a whole lot of other people either copied it and did their own revisions of it or liked the idea and did it themselves. So we have a whole mess of different language versions of the Diatessaron. We just don't have the original. So it's a big scholarly industry to to uh, look at all of them and try to distill what the, the original Diatessaron might have been. Uh, and so some people did that. But uh, most think that, no, there were four autonomous works but that uh, mark was very popular and circulated widely but matthew didn't like two or three things in it and also had extra stuff he wanted to add a lot of which i think he created and so he basically came up with an enlarged edition of mark we don't know what he called it because uh they all began to receive titles only once churches had collected all four gospels because before that they would say okay brethren this morning we're going to read from the gospel well when you now had two or three uh which one uh so they they looked at hints as to who might have written them there's no name given in the actual texts of any of them and so they figured well let's say that the first one was written by uh, mark uh, i mean he was sort of an authoritative guy right he he worked with both peter and paul uh, okay Mark, Gospel According to Mark. And how about uh, this longer one? Matthew, by the way, became by far the favorite of churches. There are many more manuscript copies of that than of any other gospel. And I think there is a pun in there, because Matthew's gospel likes the the word mathetes, disciple, in both a noun and a verb form. And I think this is a, a pun. They're taking the name of the apostle Matthew and saying, aha, this is the gospel of the Mathetes by good old Matthias. Uh, And uh, then Luke, again, nobody knew, but this is another guy that also read Mark and thought that this is great, but there's a bunch of stuff that's not in there. I think I'm going to do a new version of it slanted to a different readership. Uh, You can tell because he's writing for for uh, a Greek-speaking audience, because he eliminates the bits of Aramaic that Mark and Matthew left in their translations. And he, he like, you ever notice that uh, when uh, Jesus heals the paralytic who's lowered through the roof at Peter's house? In Mark and Matthew, it's a thatched roof. And so these guys uh, start ripping the, the thatch off. Uh, and, and down, you know, watch out below. And here, here's the guy on the stretcher. Well, in uh, in Luke, uh, he's writing for people that didn't live in houses with thatched roofs. He's writing for people in the Hellenistic Mediterranean world. So he has the the friends of the paralytic, pry the tiles off the clay-file roof. Uh, wh- why, is that a contradiction? Well, yeah, technically, but it's easy to explain why. He just didn't want the reader to stumble over something that seemed odd to them, a what, a what roof? Uh, and so there's, there are clues that, uh, that he was writing for a different audience. And, uh, and he had a lot of stuff to say. Matthew and Luke each use something like 90% of Mark with just subtle changes here and there, and then they add a bunch more. John uh, seems to have known at least Mark and Luke, maybe Matthew as well, Uh, but he totally rewrites the thing and adds loads more stuff, long monologues by Jesus and so on. No uh, parables and wise sayings like the Sermon on the Mount. That's not in John. And, uh, and the order of events is very different. Jesus' ministry lasts three years. Not one is in the other ones. And so on and so on. He's talking about himself. you got to believe in the Son. Whereas in the other ones, he's talking about the, the Father and the, and the kingdom of heaven it's very different and so most most scholars think this was written later than the others by a good bit and by somebody that just wanted to do a whole different kind of a gospel and so they were different enough that they figured well let's let's keep them all what the heck
0: what what's the shortest span of time from when they think Jesus died to when he was first written about not only the bible any any text
2: yeah i i tend to place the uh, all four gospels in the 2nd century i do think mark was the first and that uh, luke and matthew both used him but they're but i think for instance matthew was um written in stages you you can kind of tell that there's been a a large scale rewrite, and then a second rewrite on top of that. Uh, I won't put readers into a coma of boredom by going into all the reasons why. But, um, uh, and and similarly, Mark seems to have several distancing devices uh, to explain why, though Jesus predicted the end of the world in the lifetime of his contemporaries, it didn't happen. Oh, well, it's been delayed because of this and that. And there's several of those. And it seems to me that means that they kept having to try to update it by slightly fudging it. And and that's like rings in a tree. That implies several stages of composition. Uh, Luke seems to fit uh, into literary genres of the second century, and, uh, and, and John is so different. It's, it's much more like Gnosticism, and, uh, and it seems to have undergone a big uh, revision. So I think there's quite a bit of time between the ostensible time of Jesus, if there was a historical Jesus, and uh, the, uh, the writing of the Gospels.
0: But even if we pretend uh, it's correct that uh, they were written as early as as some claim, if I compare it to my own life, it would mean that I would today write the story of Jesus, but Jesus died before I was even born, and there is no internet or anything, and uh, I mean... how difficult would it be to make sure what you write is actually correct? So even if it's even later than that, then it it's, it, it uh, goes into mythology. Is this what you argue? I mean, you've written many books about why you think maybe Jesus never even existed. Can you give the a short overview of of your reasons for that, and also uh, what the um, most popular counter argument for what you think is and how you debunk that well uh
2: i guess the big reasons are that it seems to me very likely that virtually every story in the gospels can be explained very easily as a rewrite of an Old Testament story uh, of Elijah, especially of Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Joshua, and David. Uh, And uh, I go into uh, this in great detail in a book called The Christ Myth Theory and Its Problems, uh, that, like, why would there be nothing else except these things that are so strikingly similar miraculous multiplications of food stilling the storm uh, like from Jonah and so on and so on and so on uh, and the the whole pattern of it fits the mythic hero archetype you can find parallels to almost every major event in the various stories of Moses, Abraham, the Buddha, Alexander the Great, etc., and uh, especially that of the dying and rising gods, of whom there were many in in the religions in the Mediterranean neighborhood. And after you chalk all that stuff up, what have you got left? I mean, there could have been a Jesus, but it seems to me that uh, the evidence is really uh, worthless in that sense. I mean, in terms of literature and um, and moral inspiration, there there's great treasures there. Um, but uh, it seems to me that it if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's a duck, uh, and that's what we seem to have here. Uh, and uh, the uh, and also the 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 fact that Jesus is depicted like Superman. Uh, He does miracles effortlessly on every corner, casting out demons out of crowds of insane demoniacs, um, healing lepers and epileptics and so on. Oh, yeah, bring them over. And and he heals them. This, This is like is is are we dealing with reality here is is Jesus basically superman uh, it just seems to me this is fantasy uh, and and by the principle of analogy you know like oral roberts the the faith healer used to say well if jesus did it i we have the same holy spirit we ought to be able to do it too of course he tried and he was no jesus but th- his thinking was sound but i st- see it from the other end of the telescope, Uh, if if we never see such things anymore, why should you think they they happened in the past, Uh, whereas there are lots of legends that we know are legends from the past, and a lot of these stories look just like them. What am I going to conclude? Well, I don't have a time machine. I can't go back and verify it one way or the other. Uh, but I have to, if I want to say, well, what probably happened? I have to say that it's a bunch of myths and rewrites of myths. It's great stuff. Uh, it may be straw spun into gold, but I don't think it's history. I'm not one of these village atheists. Oh, that no good Bible. No, I love the Bible. It's great. I just don't think it's history.
0: I get a feeling that most things that actually become viral, you know, if you use that term, the Bible became viral or Jesus became viral through history. It can only happen if there was something that actually happened. So maybe there was somebody who got crucified in some way. Maybe it wasn't as they describe Jesus was or his life, but uh, to make the people alive in those days, because there would be people still alive when, if, if the Bible or the Gospels were written as early as they say, there w- would have been some people that were still alive who would have remembered it. So for those people not to say that you're making things up, maybe they based it on some event or something that happened.
2: Oh yeah, I readily uh, admit that though I think it's not quite as easy to posit that given the the war against Rome when the countryside of Galilee and so forth was decimated a whole lot of Jews died. I'm not sure if any witnesses would have survived that long. Uh, who knows though, maybe they did. Uh, however, the more you cut Jesus down to size as a historically plausible figure the more of a mystery it becomes as to why he would have given rise to this uh, uh this uh super character i always i'm a big comic book fan uh and it's to me it's like if somebody said there has to have been a historical nucleus to Superman. Uh, I mean, oh, all right, a lot of it's probably uh, embellishment, and it's fiction. He couldn't have leaped tall buildings in a single bound. He wasn't invulnerable, uh, et cetera, of course. But uh, uh, there must have been a guy at the root of it. So you, you do all this paring away of the unbelievable parts, and you find out, ah, there was a guy. He was Clark Kent a mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper. What? that's it? You would have had Superman comics because somebody remembered a a reporter, period? And the way they cut Jesus down to just being a wise rabbi, you know, how come there's no religion uh, devoted to Yohanan ben Zakkai, or Rabbi Akiva uh, or Rabbi Hillel? Uh, And it it just strikes—it's possible. But it just seems to me that theory creates more problems than it solves. Oh, but I, I didn't mean to skip the the thing about the the best argument for a historical Jesus. Uh, and that, oh, but I'm sorry. There's so many things. That is a big mouth. I like to say. You know, there there were uh, world religions that probably did not have the founder figure that they uh, their myths tell about. Like Mithraism was the official religion of the Roman Empire and had millions of devotees before Christianity. There was never any Mithras. He was a Vedic sun god from thousands of years before. Uh, but uh, there there are still worshipers of Mithras today. Uh, or the Buddha. It's highly unlikely that, that there was ever Prince Siddhartha. Could have been, but uh, there again, what we all the evidence we have is the fairy tale like, and a lot of stuff that just couldn't possibly have gone back to him. A lot of theological treatises uh, written in his name, and, and so forth. Uh, Lao Tzu, did he exist? Uh, well, uh, he needn't have existed. Mm-hmm. These guys could be just uh, fictive mouthpieces. Into whose mouth uh, the writers put their own opinions, like some of the Platonic dialogues that Socrates didn't actually say, but Plato decided to have him say it, uh, gain credibility. But anyway, the big argument that that would fit with uh, the uh, hi- there being a historical Jesus, I think, is the political one. Uh, these odd bits in the Gospels where Jesus says, um, uh, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. And then the disciples do have swords uh, shortly afterward, and at the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a brief exchange uh, with the the arresting party. Uh, He says elsewhere, uh, the kingdom of God advances with violence and violent men seize it by force. Who's he talking about there? Uh, It it sounds like, you know, revolutionists. What was he doing cleansing the temple? The area he uh, was uh, cleansing, kicking all those salesmen out and all that. This is bigger than several football fields. And there were armed guards all over the place, especially at Passover. Uh, How could he have gotten away with this? It's like the the, the writer has uh, just imagined Jesus was some eccentric uh, turning over the tables at a church rummage sale. But no, we're talking about a big thing that would have required a group, a pretty big group of armed men, uh, and uh, and so forth. It, it just seems kind of uh, like what's this doing in the Gospels if they aren't loose ends? that uh, as if they were trying to erase politically dangerous material uh, because they, they didn't want Roman persecution because they were subversives. And they said, okay, we're not going to be political anymore. Let's uh, sanitize the image of Jesus. Uh, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. that if I, I think if there was a historical Jesus, that's probably what he was. And then similarly, what is the deal with James and uh, Simon, or Simeon, becoming the head honcho of the Jerusalem church after Jesus. This is what church fathers tell us anyway. Uh, uh, James was, was put to death, and then Simeon replaced him, and then he was put to death that that's what some call the caliphate of james just like when muhammad died you had uh, ali uthman umar and so on as the caliphs afterward uh, it's it sounds kind of like that uh, that these guys were the the caretakers of the movement in the absence of jesus who had been executed and that historical analogy i mean that's not foolproof that's not absolutely convincing but That uh, makes enough sense to me to leave the question ultimately open, uh, that and the whole thing with the similarity to the Jewish rebels we know of. So there might have been one, um, but it just seems to me there is so much evidence on the other side that I I think the uh, burden of proof is on the the Jesus historicist, but they could be right.
0: Finally, I want to ask, yeah, I mean— it's clear that uh, the Bible has been used to make money, you know, and to control people through history. And, and maybe that's why it's become so popular and long-lasting. But is that really enough? I mean, what what do you think is the reason why the Bible has become such an important book and sustained life for so long? I mean, it's been 2,000 years uh, or so uh, I mean, it can't be enough that uh, you know the the Vatican or you know the early church fathers uh, propagandized it and you know forced people to. I mean that that's been done with other books that, that no longer exist or that people remember.
2: Well, I think uh, once I I gave a, a little question to. Um, some freshmen in a Bible class I taught at a college near here. And I said, how many of you, if you don't mind answering, would still be interested in Christianity if it did not promise eternal life? And most of them piously said they would, but I I secretly and maybe that's true. But uh, I kind of think that if it didn't offer that a lot of people wouldn't give it a second look, uh, and they're doing what they have to to get that ticket to heaven. Uh, and I, that's it. A lot of it, I mean, listen to evangelistic preaching, it's always trying to scare people into uh, buying that ticket. And uh, I, I don't mean necessarily financially, I, I do not think all ministers and evangelists are just crooks trying to bilk people I, that's i've known too many of them to to think that uh, but uh, even there what motivates them to get people saved well they say you got to believe the right stuff to be saved and so um dissent is just not tolerated like suppose you went to a church and uh, you went up uh, to the front uh, at the evangelistic invitation and you said, I, I believe you. I want to accept Christ as my personal savior. And oh, that's great, brother. And they pray with you. And and then a month or so later, you've been reading the Bible and you come back to uh, your pastor and you say, you know, I, I don't see this Trinity stuff in the Bible. I, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. I'm relying on him for salvation. But the Holy Spirit as a third person, I I just don't buy that, Uh, you would be told, well, uh, you better buy it because if you don't, you are not a true Christian. In other words, it always boils down to you'd better accept the party line, whatever it happens to be uh, in your type of Christianity, or you're going to fail that theology exam. Whoa, whoa, whoa. In that case, uh, forget I said it, and uh, so I think that promise uh, is, is probably the real uh, drawing card. Uh, and, and of course, people do find comfort and guidance because there is a lot of great wisdom in the Bible. Anybody would profit from studying it. Um, but uh, whether you believe in eternal life or life after death or not. And uh, the, the idea that you have God There to give you comfort and guidance. People often read particular passages out of context, even, and use them kind of like Hindu mantras. They like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, uh, and stuff like that. People will uh, just sort of memorize that and repeat it themselves. Say, Yeah, yeah, I don't have to be afraid. Uh, Whatever comes, Christ in me will give me the power to do it, and that inspires them. So. There are rewards to it psychologically. Or suppose somebody does you wrong and you're, you're tormented by the bitterness you feel. And then you read what Jesus says about forgiveness. Uh, and, uh, and you realize, gee, I'd probably be a lot better off if I forgave this guy. And you do, and you, a great burden is lifted. Well, that's psychological wisdom. And there's plenty of that to be found in the Bible. So there are good reasons for it. But another one is fellowship angle. Uh, you join a church or whatever and make friends there and they're comrades affirming and supporting one another, reinforcing their common beliefs. Uh, and it's a very satisfying thing. Uh, so uh, there are plenty of good reasons. I-, I will not say Christianity is just some kind of scam uh even though i do not believe it's literally true but that's uh, that's asking too much uh, there's more to religion than than claims like that
0: great so if people want to listen to your podcasts and or get your books where can they do that
2: uh let's see i would just google the bible geek i'm not to tell you the truth since i never listen to them after i do them i don't <laughs> i don't know what to tell you to, to uh, type in, but the Bible Geek, I'm sure, would turn up Googling that. Uh, I also have a website that's under construction, but there still is ordering information and um, various writings of mine on there. And that's Robert M. Price, all one word, uh, dot mindvendor.com. That's V E N D O R. So a lot of my stuff is there, and links to other things by me. And I'm on—I uh, have a Patreon account, and uh, so you can look up Patreon slash Robert M. Price and find my uh, frequent columns and such there.
0: I—I I'll, I'll always like when you quote the Bible. You—you you, uh, employ a, a special kind of voice. <laughs> <laughs> How have you developed that?
2: Uh, well, when I'm doing just Bible narration uh, or I am uh, doing God uh, when he speaks, I am doing a very lame impression of Charlton Heston, my people hear the Ten Commandments. Uh, when I uh, am uh, doing the voice of Jesus, it's uh, a lame attempt at doing Willem Defoe as Jesus in the Last Temptation of Christ. And uh, uh, Paul, I do as Paul Lind, the comedian. uh, For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And uh, John is John Wayne. Peter is Peter Lorre and and so forth. And uh, I find that sort of freshens the whole thing up.
0: Yeah, The Last Temptation of Christ is probably my favorite Bible movie. Uh, I like that part where... Jesus doesn't die and he lives a full life and then he realizes he's actually on the cross the whole time and the child is the devil. I think that's amazing. Uh, I understand why the church people were upset, but I liked it. <laughs> well, they
2: uh, and that was uh, unfortunate that they took it the way they did. I realize it's not the usual version of the story, but that movie is the most theologically important Jesus movie ever made. Because, uh, it, of course, the temptation of Christ was you could just live as an ordinary man. Doesn't that sound good? Well, that's the last temptation. Uh, and uh, you could turn down being a, the king of the world. Uh, that That's so obviously a big deal. But to just live a happy life Boy, maybe I ought to do that. And then he realizes, oh, my God, what am I doing? Uh, And uh, that's good. But the idea that here is a true man, as Christianity has always said, right, who is God incarnate. uh, Would that be an easy thing to come to grips with? Uh, and, and, of course, it isn't. Uh, Jesus, is, it's driving him insane, literally, though he finally can, can accommodate it. Uh, and I, I, nobody's ever even made that plausible before. And these people did it. So it's very important, even from an Orthodox Christian standpoint, if you just know what to look for in it. And it's my favorite, too. I just love it.
0: Well, I can talk about the Bible for hours, but I won't keep you much longer. But uh, thank you a lot for taking the time to be on the podcast.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. We'll have to do it
0: again sometime. Go to robertmprice.mindvendor.com and also check out the Bible Geek podcast. We talked a bit about the two trees in the Garden of Eden. Boaz and Joaquin were two copper, brass or bronze pillars that stood on the porch of Solomon's temple, the first temple in Jerusalem. Now Robert said that uh, these two pillars probably represented the two trees. Worth adding to this is that the pillars representing Boaz and Joaquin can also be found in most Masonic lodges and uh, in Masonic rituals. So there's that. Let's end with the song Goldmine by The Jokes, featuring Ethan from H3H3. I'll see you in the next episode. Freedom is in the mind.
1: A gold mine ain't worth having without you I just want you to know is full, I had the mightest touch, but it's all fool's gold without you, a gold mine ain't worth having.